Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr Katani. In this episode, we bring you exclusive excerpts from my new book, Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution and the Science of Life, exploring where cancer came from, where it's going and how we might finally beat it. I'm very happy to announce that my new book, Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution and the Science of Life, is finally published in the UK. And you can find all the links to buy it from your favourite retailer, as well as signed book plate stickers at rebelcellbook.com. So, what's it all about? Many of us think of cancer as a contemporary killer, a disease of our own making caused by our modern lifestyles. But, as I explain in the book, that perception just isn't true. Although it might be rare in many species, cancer is the enemy lurking within every complex organism. Why? Because cancer is a bug in the system of life. We get cancer because we can't not get it. Cancer has always been with us. It killed our hominid ancestors, the mammals they evolved from, and the dinosaurs that trampled the ground before that. Tumours grow in pets, livestock and wild animals. Even tiny jelly-like hydra, creatures that are little more than a tube full of water, can get cancer. Cancer starts when cells rebel against the social norms of the body, throwing off their molecular shackles and growing out of control in a shambolic mockery of normal life. This is why we can't avoid cancer, because the very genes that drive it are essential for life itself. The revolution has raged on and off for millions of years, but it was only in the 20th century that doctors and scientists made any significant progress in understanding and treating cancer. And it's only in the past few decades that we've finally begun to make meaningful improvements in survival. Now the game is changing. Scientists have infiltrated cancer's cellular rebellion and are finally learning its secrets. Seeing cancer in a new way as rebel cells adapting and evolving within the landscape of the body, is pointing towards new ways of preventing and controlling cancer in the long term, or even driving it to extinction altogether. I've learned so much about cancer, and about genetics, biology and evolution, uncovered amazing stories and spoken with so many brilliant researchers while writing this book, and I am absolutely thrilled to finally be able to share it with you. Just head to rebelcellbook.com to order your copy now. And if you'd like to be in with a chance to win a signed copy of the UK version of Rebel Cell, you can enter our prize draw. If you're on Twitter, please retweet or reply to our pinned tweet about this episode. Or alternatively, drop an email to podcast at geneticsunzip.com with prize draw in the subject line. We'll select one lucky winner at random and I'll pop a signed copy in the post to you. And there'll be another giveaway in a couple of months for the US edition, which is coming out on the 29th of September. So look out for that one too. Back in the early days of life on Earth, every cell was its own entity, an island in a sea of other free-living cells. But after a billion or so years of the single life, it was time to settle down. Cells began to club together and communicate with each other, forming small multicellular organisms. At first, these were little more than loose collectives, but over millennia they evolved into highly organised creatures. 
they learn to specialise and differentiate their many parts, forming distinct tissues and organs. A place for every cell, and every cell in its place. Cells have decided that it's better to buddy up and form multicellular organisms than go it alone at several points during the history of life, creating the progenitors of fungi, algae and plants. Multicellular animals are thought to have evolved only once, first appearing on the scene around 600 million years ago. Although becoming multicellular means that each individual cell loses its autonomy, only replicating exactly when and where is necessary, during development, growth or repair, for example, there are some big advantages to being part of a larger whole. For a start, multicellular organisms can grow large, providing a significant survival advantage, because it's hard to get eaten when you're bigger than everything else around you. They can eat a wider range of foods and evolve adaptations to cope with a range of environments, moving further and faster than unicellular slowpokes. Having lots of cells also means that specific tasks can be allocated to particular parts of the body, known as differentiation, allowing much more sophisticated functions to emerge than would be available to a single-celled jack-of-all-trades, such as nerves, muscles and blood. Cells within a larger organism can also work together to create public goods, things like nutrients or other chemicals needed for growth. If you're a single cell, living on your own, anything you produce will spill out into the environment around you, where it can be gobbled up by your competitors. But products that are made inside a multicellular body stay inside, benefiting the whole organism and helping it to grow. Most excitingly, if you're multicellular, it means that you can have sex, rather than just handily splitting into two like bacteria when it's time to reproduce. The evolution of sex in multicellular animals has led to a clear distinction between the cells that make eggs or sperm, formerly called germ cells, and those that make up the rest of the body, known as the soma or somatic cells. The core purpose of the soma is to get on with the dirty work of staying alive, feeding, fighting, finding mates and so on, while the germ cells are carefully protected in order to pass on the genetic torch to the next generation. A multicellular lifestyle only works if there are tight controls on cell division and function. Single-celled organisms like bacteria have one evolutionary goal, to proliferate and pass on their genes. A dead unicellular organism is literally an evolutionary dead end, so there's a big incentive to stay alive and keep on replicating. But in a multicellular organism, proliferation is only allowed as long as it's part of normal development and growth from baby to adult, to heal wounds, or as part of the regular running repairs required to maintain the body. Cells also need to make sure they stick to their designated roles. A neuron in the brain can't suddenly decide to produce insulin like the islet cells in the pancreas. Cells in your skin need to stay put, forming an impermeable barrier against the world, rather than crawling off on a journey to another part of the body. And any malfunctioning or damaged cells should die, or be picked off by the immune system, instead of hanging around to cause trouble. Multicellularity is therefore best seen as a biological social contract, with each cell doing its duty for the greater good of the organism. 
Cancer cells ignore these rules, proliferating out of control and invading the surrounding tissue, eventually spreading through the body and ultimately resulting in death if they can't be successfully controlled. In order to understand where cancer comes from, we first need to understand the rules of multicellular life and what happens when they're ignored. The soil-dwelling slime mould, Dictyostelium discoidum, Dicti for short, spends its days mooching about in the soil as a single-celled amoeba, as long as life is good and there are plenty of bacteria to eat. But when food supplies run low, the solitary cells start sending out SOS signals that cause them to cluster together. Up to 100,000 cells will gang up to form a small slimy blob just a few millimetres long, unimaginatively known as a slug, which slithers off in search of a nice, brightly lit spot with the right temperature and humidity. Once there, the slug transforms again. This time it pushes up a vertical stalk, topped with a bud-shaped fruiting body. Finally, this bud bursts open and scatters tiny spores far out into the world in the hope of finding more amenable conditions, each of which can germinate into a new Dicti amoeba and start the cycle again. The life cycle of Dicti appears to be a shining example of the benefits of multicellularity, with individual cells teaming up to reproduce when the going gets tough. It also highlights the downside of being part of a cellular society. Although 80% of the cells that make the slug will end up becoming spores and get another shot at life, the remaining 20% that end up in the stalk will die, sacrificing themselves for the greater good of the colony. But even in this simple society, there are cheats that break the rules. In 1982, Yale University biologist Leo Buss noticed some antisocial behaviour going on in the world of slime moulds. He saw that particular cells in a related species, Dictyostelium mucoroides, were more likely to end up in the fruiting body than in the stalk, giving them a much better chance of surviving and passing on their genes. He called these cheats somatic cell parasites. A quarter of a century later, Gad Sholsky and his colleagues at Baylor College of Medicine in Texas published a paper showing that the same selfish behaviour also happened in Dicti, resulting from alterations in any one of more than a hundred different genes. Then, they saw something even more curious. Cheaters only cheated when they were surrounded by amoebas they weren't directly related to with some groups of cells only making a paltry 5% contribution to the stalk in the presence of genetically different neighbours. But when they were surrounded by genetically identical progeny, the full 20% of cheats knuckled down and accepted death, laying down their life for their family, but not for random strangers. Presumably, there's no extra benefit in muscling to the top of the stalk if the family genes are going to be passed on by their kindred anyway. We should be careful not to imply agency or intelligence on behalf of these slimy cheats. They're merely responding to their genetic programming, which has been shaped by natural selection. Once the genetic variation arises in an amoeba that makes it more likely to push to the top of the stalk, that cell is more likely to survive and keep on multiplying, creating a new generation of cheats that also carry the same mutation. 
But it's amazing that an organism as simple as a single-celled slime mould contains so many genes that maintain multicellular social behaviour. And it's even more incredible that these social rules go out of the window once those genes are altered, but only if it's evolutionarily advantageous to do so. A whole population of selfish amoebas would come unstuck pretty fast if there weren't any individuals prepared to create the sacrificial stalk. Then there's the example of the Cape honeybee. Like most social insects, these busy bees live in a strictly hierarchical colony divided into female workers and male drones, ruled over by a queen. She's the only female in the hive that gets to mate, producing powerful hormones to suppress the sexual urges of the workers. If the queen bee goes AWOL, workers can reactivate their ovaries and start laying unfertilised eggs that hatch into male drones. But just occasionally... Cape honeybee workers rise up in rebellion, rearranging their reproductive processes to produce female offspring and regal pheromones, even if a queen is already present. It's a phenomenon known as thelitoki, from the Greek words thelis and tokos, meaning female birth. Being able to activate queen mode allows regular workers to become cheaters, ignoring their usual jobs to lounge around producing baby bees. Groups of fake queens will even invade neighbouring hives of a closely related subspecies of Cape Bee, taking over from the hapless queen and workers inside and cranking out even more pseudo-queens. As the hive gradually fills up with the offspring of these cheating queens, there are fewer and fewer workers left to get on with the important business of collecting nectar and pollinating plants, eventually resulting in colony collapse. Remarkably, a team of South African and German researchers recently discovered that the ability to become a cheating queen comes down to a change in a single letter in the bee genome, located within a gene whose function is currently unknown. These cheats are remarkably prosperous and are widespread across the northeastern region of South Africa, despite bringing about the demise of their hive and causing misery for local beekeepers. But from an evolutionary perspective, this ability to repopulate a hive with female workers and a new queen is extremely useful. It's very windy in the region of South Africa where these bees normally live, and queens have a tendency to get blown away when they venture out of the hive. Under these blustery conditions, tolerating the risk of rogue queens seems like a small price to pay to ensure the overall survival of the species. By early May, Arizona State University's Tempe campus is already baking in a dry 40 degrees Celsius heat that makes your eyeballs shrivel and your skin crawl. It's a bad place for a pale British writer who's prone to sunburn, but a perfect home for a cactus. The latest addition to the university's grounds is a small collection of crested cacti nestled in a gravelly bed between two faculty buildings. These are no ordinary plants. Rather than poking neatly rounded fingers towards the sky, their stems explode in an exuberant array of swollen growths. It's impossible to look at the riotous prickly lumps and not spot the similarities with cancerous tumours bulging inside a human body. The parallels are obvious to Athena Actipis, the woman who planted them there. 
She's the director of the Cooperation and Conflict Lab at Arizona State University and co-director of the intriguingly named Human Generosity Project, a massive interdisciplinary research programme studying societies and cultures all over the world in search of the forces that shape human generosity. After completing a PhD on the evolution of cooperation in human societies, she became intrigued by the idea that the principles of functional or dysfunctional societies might also work down on the cellular level. But it wasn't cancer that first got her interested in the concept of cellular society. It was a crested cactus. I found this website that had all these amazing pictures of crested cacti, she tells me as we sit in her office, hidden deep within the ASU's psychology department. There's something really profound about the fact that cancer-like phenomena are happening not just in animals, but also in life that on the surface looks so different from us. Plants are biologically alien to how we think about ourselves and other animals. But that switched on something for me about how cancer is a very fundamental thing about life. Rather than getting caught up in cells, molecules and genes like most other cancer researchers, Actipis wondered whether or not her theories about how individuals in a society cooperate might bring a different perspective. Looking back over her work framing societies as networks of individuals with shared resources and responses to challenges, she suspected that the organised tissues of the body must normally act as cooperative societies of well-behaved cells, all adhering to five golden rules. Don't over-proliferate. Do the tasks you're meant to do. Don't take more resources than you need. Clean up after yourself and die when you should. Just as these rules will enable any society to function well, including our own, problems will arise if individual members decide to go their own way. Cancer cells cheat by breaking all these rules, initially maybe one at a time, but then all at once as they take hold and spread through the body. They multiply out of control, ignore their normal function within an organ, gobble up oxygen and nutrients, create a toxic acidic environment and steadfastly refuse to die. Multicellular organisms have evolved over a billion years to function as societies of cells, with every unit working in its specified role towards the common good and the propagation of the species rather than the needs of an individual cell. This rigid hierarchy leaves no room for the free and easy lifestyle of our single-celled forebears. Cell division is tightly controlled, dictated by a host of complex, intertwined molecular and genetic pathways ensuring that a cell only divides exactly when and where it's needed. Disorder will not be tolerated. There's no space for damaged or disobedient cells. Troublemakers are encouraged to commit suicide for the good of the rest. Old cells are put peacefully to sleep. Strict as it seems, this regime is what keeps us healthy and alive. Yet, within any organised society, human, animal or cellular, there will always be individuals who bend the rules. And I'm sure we've all done it ourselves, especially if we know we can get away with it. 
Just as human societies thrive and grow best when people cooperate and have social or legal norms that limit competing or cheating, the evolution of stable multicellular organisms also requires the suppression of cellular cheating. The more cells there are, and the longer they have to hang around, the more challenging that becomes. A huge amount of effort has gone into suppressing cheaters during the evolution of multicellular animals. The bigger you are, the more members in your cellular society, and the greater the likelihood of cheats emerging, so you'll need more control mechanisms to suppress them. For an individual cell, committing to be part of a bigger multicellular project means giving up autonomy and no longer being in charge of your own evolutionary destiny. Instead, you buy into the hope that the body you're part of manages to pass on your shared genes before it dies. But there's the ever-present incentive to break the rules, throw off the oppressive shackles of your cellular society, and just start proliferating anyway. Unfortunately, an obvious problem quickly arises. Cheating shifts the balance between the long-term goal of the organism – to live long enough to reproduce – and the internal drive of the cheetah to profit personally over its neighbours in the short term by growing into a malignant cancer, even if that's ultimately at the expense of its host. There's also a natural limit to the number of cheats that any society can tolerate. The organised bodies of multicellular animals would devolve into chaos and human societies would quickly descend into a Mad Max-style dystopia if everyone decided to cheat at once. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzip.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show? Every year, thousands of papers are published in scientific journals, detailing the fruits of the labour of the international community of cancer researchers. Most of them are fairly humdrum, pushing back the frontiers of science a few millimetres at a time. But in March 2012, a paper came out in the New England Journal of Medicine that changed everything. It was the brainchild of Professor Charles Swanton at Cancer Research UK's London Research Institute, now part of the Francis Crick Institute, an ambitious doctor-turned-scientist with access to a useful combination of two things – cancer patients and flashy new DNA reading machines. By this point, large studies had already revealed startling genetic diversity between tumours growing in different people pointing to the need to select targeted therapies based on the genetic makeup of each individual's disease rather than a generic one-size-fits-all treatment. This makes sense given that we now know every cancer arises as an independent evolutionary event with its own unique set of random mutations. But this approach relies on the assumption that all the cells in a tumour are effectively the same, having collected the same set of driver mutations in a straightforward game of genetic bingo. This was partly a limitation of DNA sequencing technology at the time, which needed relatively large quantities of starting material extracted from big tumour chunks or billions of cells grown in the lab, all mashed together in a test tube. 
As techniques became more sensitive, things started to look more complicated. In 2006, researchers looking for an altered version of a cancer driver gene called EGFR, which makes cells resistant to certain targeted therapies, discovered that a small proportion of cells in lung tumours already carried the resistance mutation before treatment even started. A couple of years later, scientists showed that seemingly identical leukaemia cells flowing through the bloodstream could be clearly distinguished into separate tribes based on certain genetic markers. By 2010, researchers had discovered that secondary tumours that had spread from a primary pancreatic cancer were genetically related to the founder population, but appeared to have picked up a bunch of new mutations on their metastatic journey. Then, in 2011, a team of Chinese researchers discovered differences in the set of mutated driver genes found in neighbouring slices through a single large liver tumour. In the same year, scientists in New York split a small piece of breast tumour down into a hundred single cells and sequenced the DNA in each one. The cells broadly fell into three distinct but related family groups, each with their own unique mix of genetic strengths and weaknesses. The outline of an unsettling picture was starting to emerge. Every single tumour is actually a patchwork of related but genetically distinct clusters of cells, clones, some of which harbour mutations responsible for metastasis or resistance to treatment. But while all these studies were highly informative, none of them truly captured the genetic diversity within an individual cancer or explained how these clones had emerged and evolved. Then came Evie. Medical confidentiality prevents us from knowing their name or gender, but EV, patient EV001, opened a window onto a world within cancer that had never been seen before. They'd been diagnosed with a large tumour, almost taking over one kidney, which had seeded a second one alongside. Evie's lungs were peppered with secondary cancers, while a particularly large growth had set up home in their chest wall. Surgery was the best treatment option, even though the outlook must have looked bleak. But before going under the knife, they decided to volunteer for a clinical trial, testing whether or not a six-week course of the drug Affinitor, Everolimus, could shrink the tumours first and make them easier to remove, continuing the treatment afterwards if it seemed to be helping. As Evie was undergoing surgery, Swanton and his team collected their tumours and chopped them into pieces nine from the large primary, two from the one in their chest, and the whole of the little secondary kidney tumour for good measure. Then they spent three years painstakingly analysing the DNA from each of them, putting together a catalogue of all the genetic changes they could find. The results were fascinating and confounding. Although they were all clearly related and shared a number of mutations in common, no two samples were genetically identical not even clumps sitting right next to each other. What's more, the distant secondary tumours were remarkably different from the primary cancers they sprang from. The next step was to work out how all these clusters of cells were related in order to map out the evolutionary journey they'd been on. They did it like this. Imagine you're looking at a photo of all the people in a very large, very strange family from a faraway land. First, you notice that every single one of them has bright blue hair, 
whereas all the other people in the country are dark-haired. That tells you that the gene change responsible for blue hair must have happened a long time ago and was probably the first thing to distinguish this unusual bunch from more regular folk. Then you spot that about half of the family members have six fingers on each hand, while the rest have five. So this genetic alteration must have happened after the hair colour, yet still early on when there were few people in the family. One half got the six-finger mutation, so all their descendants that inherit it will also carry it, while the others didn't. Finally, you realise that each person has different coloured eyes – red, yellow, green, purple and more – as well as all sorts of other unique traits. This last set of gene changes must have arisen very recently in each person, as they're specific to each individual, rather than shared among the whole group. This is enough information for even an amateur genealogist to build a simple tree showing how the family must have split and changed over time, as well as figuring out the relationships of the underlying genetic faults. The hair gene changed first in the clan's ancestral founder, then the gene for finger number, then eye colour and everything else. Applying the same principle to the genetic data from all the little chunks from Evie's tumours, Swanton was able to piece together a family tree for the different cell clones, identifying each new genetic change splitting off as a branch from the original trunk. Multiple samples from a further three patients from the trial confirmed that what they were seeing was true. Every tumour was made up of related but distinct clones, each carrying shared and unique driver mutations. The neatly traced simple stick figures of the tumour family trees in the resulting paper in the New England Journal of Medicine look unnervingly familiar to one drawn almost two centuries earlier by another scientist. In a beautiful moment of scientific synchronicity, he was also called Charles. One day in 1837, Barnacle obsessive and bassoon enthusiast Charles Darwin turned a fresh new page in his notebook and wrote the words, I think. Beneath that, he sketched out his idea for a tree of life, with new species branching away from older, extinct specimens as they adapted and changed over time. This simple concept lies at the heart of his theory of evolution by natural selection, finally published in 1859 after a lengthy period of procrastination. Evidence from every strand of science, from geology to genetics, has since supported his proposal that evolution underpins the diversity of life on Earth. As an aside, Darwin had been fascinated by earthworms for many decades of his life, and his final book, published six months before he died, was a treatise on their behaviour. To test whether or not worms could hear, he set about making what must have been an almighty racket, Darwin Sr. playing a tin whistle and his son parping loudly on a bassoon, followed by loud shouts and thumping of piano keys, eventually concluding that while they were sensitive to vibrations in the air, worms were immune to the Darwin family's musical talents. Evolution has been at work on this planet for four billion years, shaping organisms to suit environments ranging from murky oceans to breathless mountaintops. Random genetic changes, usually the result of blips and slips in DNA copying and cell division, or the impact of external forces such as radiation or chemicals, led to species with slightly different characteristics. 
most of these changes will be either harmful or have no impact. But a tiny handful will be a lucky biological bonus. A tweak that makes the bearer slightly bigger, stronger, smaller, smarter, sturdier, stripier or spottier than the rest of its kin. This works to its advantage in the face of predation, food shortages, lack of space, changing climate or any other selective pressure you can imagine. As a result, these ever-so-slightly souped-up animals, plants or bugs are ever-so-slightly more likely to reproduce and pass on their useful genetic arsenal to the next generation. Rinse and repeat over millions of years, and here we are today, with a planet covered by a patchwork of more or less distantly related species, each able to trace their genetic roots back to a four billion year old common ancestor. Just as Charles Darwin's conclusions about the origin of species were ultimately inescapable, organisms adapt and change in response to selective pressures. Charles Swanton's results tell us that cancers in the body behave in the same way. A large population of genetically messed up, rapidly replicating cancer cells is a microcosm of evolution, with each little pocket of cells going off on its own choose-your-own-adventure. Secondary tumours are more distant relatives, with their own set of molecular quirks and foibles. All of these clones came from the same single founder cell, yet diverged as the disease developed, picking up new mutations and alterations along the way. Before you get the impression that cancer is a disease solely of genes and genetics, there's also epigenetics, the nurture bit of the nature plus nurture equation. Our genome is plastered with all sorts of molecular marks and tags, known as epigenetic modifications, which can't be easily detected using simple DNA sequencing techniques. Like sticky notes placed in a recipe book to flag up favourite recipes, these modifications mark out patterns of gene activity in response to changes in the environment, both within and outside the body, including diet, stress, exercise and all the rest. Many of these modifications are messed up in tumours and are likely to play a role in enabling cancer cells to adapt to changes in their local environment by switching genes on or off without necessarily having to pick up a mutation. As an example, a vital DNA repair gene called MLH1 is switched off in some bowel cancers in response to low oxygen levels a change that's only detectable by looking for alterations in epigenetic marks around the gene, rather than any underlying mutation that could be spotted through DNA sequencing. Any technique for looking for the mutations in a tumour that relies solely on mashing up large chunks of tissue will miss all this exquisite diversity, like blending up a smoothie made of 20 types of whole fruit and expecting to be able to discern the taste of a single bilberry against an entire pineapple. This is particularly relevant when it comes to small clumps of cells harbouring mutations that make them resistant to treatment, which may not be obvious at first, but turn out to be lethal further down the line. Scientists refer to this mutational patchwork as tumour heterogeneity, and it can tell us a lot about how an individual cancer has grown and changed over time at the basic genetic level. On a global scale, evolution has led to the glorious diversity of species on Earth. But genetic diversity within tumours is a big problem, and it's the reason why most treatments for advanced cancer ultimately fail. In nature, 
genetic variation among organisms within a species means that there's usually a few hardy specimens that can adapt and survive, even in the face of the harshest conditions. In cancer, the onslaught of radiotherapy, chemotherapy or molecularly targeted drugs acts as a selective pressure, weeding out sensitive cells and killing them. Yet there are likely to be a few pockets of resistant cells that make it through to the other side and start growing again. It's not the fault of the treatment, it's just evolution in action. The same feature that creates thriving biodiversity is also a bug in the system of life. And, like a comic book villain emerging from a toxic swamp with ten times the strength and twice the brutality, what doesn't kill cancer only makes it stronger. How will this story end? You will have to read the book to find out. Just head to rebelcellbook.com to order yourself a copy. And if you can't get enough of the sound of my voice, I also narrated the audiobook. And if you'd like to be in with a chance to win a signed copy of the UK version of Rebel Cell, just enter the prize draw. If you're on Twitter, please retweet or reply to our pinned tweet about this episode. Or alternatively, drop an email to podcast at geneticsunzip.com with prize draw in the subject line. We'll select one lucky winner at random and I'll pop a signed copy in the post. And there'll be another giveaway in a couple of months for the US edition coming 29th of September, so you can look out for that too. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really, really does make a difference and it helps more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Kat Arney. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, our logo is designed by James Mayle, and audio production is by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>